Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is episode number 146, recorded on December 6th, 2019. Here are some of our topics for today. No stable coins in the European Union, a deep mind update, the story of Sono, a new report by the European Investment Fund, and more. We will also run a conversation with Christoph Perron, the co-founder of Stimergy. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. How are you? Everything's going well here. Yeah, everything's fine here, too. And this is our first episode that we are recording in an unusual time slot that is on Friday, and it will go out on Monday. And I have to say, this is a bit of a different feeling. It's in the afternoon, while normally we would go in the morning, and it's at the end of the week rather than at the beginning of the week. So I'm really interested in seeing how this is going to change the whole podcast. Yeah, and it's important to maintain the energy through the end of the week. And you mentioned it being an unusual time slot, but this will be our more usual time slot, hoping to have these podcasts come out on Monday so you have a chance to catch up on last week's news as soon as possible. Yes, and this is something that's probably going to uh, get some getting used to, uh, for me at least. But it's also good because I also uh, normally do our TechEU newsletter in the morning. So I also can go through all the most important news of the week and uh, see what uh, we should discuss in the evening. So I, I think it's a great timing for us. So speaking of news to discuss, uh, let us talk about uh, things that have happened. And uh, today I actually got two stories rather than one, but they are both reasonably short and they are both more like updates to something that we discussed on this podcast before. Remember, if you listened to last episode, I actually promised more follow-ups. So uh, here come the first two of them. First up, the future of Facebook's cryptocurrency Libra in the European Union. In short, there isn't one at all, at least for now. Uh, the European Commission and the European Council have released a joint statement on so-called stablecoins. That is, uh, cryptocurrencies with a minimal price volatility that are sort of anchored by certain stable assets like fiat currencies uh, or uh, other types of assets. And the position of the Council and Commission is pretty firm and clear. Cross-border stablecoins are not allowed to operate in the European Union and this will not change until there is a Europe-wide framework for it. Here's a quote from the statement. When a stable coin initiative has the potential to reach a global scale, these concerns are likely to be amplified and new potential risks to monetary sovereignty, monetary policy, the safety and efficiency of payment systems, financial stability and fair competition can arise. The quote ends. And the statement doesn't necessarily mention Libra by name, but it kind of sort of hints towards it. Uh, you can decide uh, for yourself whether it means it or not. Here's another quote. Some recent projects of global dimension have provided insufficient information on how precisely they intend to manage risks and operate their business. This lack of adequate information makes it very difficult to reach definitive conclusions on whether and how the existing EU regulatory framework applies. The quote ends. Uh, the EU finance commissioner, uh, Valdis Dombrovskis, also said that the commission is already working on a new regulation for crypto assets and 
stablecoins, and he also promised uh, that public consultations on this will launch before the end of the year, so basically this month. Uh, in the meantime, however, there is certainly no place for uh, uh, Libra right now in the EU, and it is really hard to predict how long it would take to develop and approve uh, the regulations that I just mentioned, even though I have to say that there are certain regulations already uh, adopted on the country level, but uh, I think the European-wide sort of regulation is pretty far away. Natalie, what's your take? What do you think? So it makes me think, are there other stablecoins beyond Libra that are currently operating in the EU that might come under this purview? I don't I don't really think so not necessary I mean there there are loads of uh, cryptocurrencies I think I saw the number today 2700 cryptocurrencies in total in the world probably some of them are stable coins indeed and probably it does make them sort of illegal in the European Union although this is a statement again and not necessarily something that has uh, the strength of a law but I'm not sure how exactly it would work out Anyway, Libra is the biggest uh, idea by now. Okay, so my second update I will do a bit later. So first, Natalie, I wanted to hear uh, your story, if that's okay. Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk about one of the world's and definitely one of Europe's most ambitious crowdfunding campaigns. And this was launched last week. So it started December 1st. And by what I think is one of the, the most bravest startups in Europe. And this company is called Sono. And if you spend any time in the European tech ecosystem or in the mobility space, the distinctiveness of this vehicle will be, of course, familiar to you. But for those of you that don't know it, uh, Sono is an electric car startup unlike any other. So it's powered by solar cells on the roof and there is moss growing in the dashboard. I don't think the moss does anything functional. It's more of a visual, but it is quite distinctive. The company was founded by a group of three friends from Munich, Lauren Hahn, Jonah Christians, and Navina Perensteiner in 2016. And from the beginning, Sono operated in quite an untraditional way. Everything the company has done has really put ethics and environmental consciousness at the forefront. And these principles have really been kind of weaving throughout everything that they've done. And when they were founded, the company took a very clear commitment to build something for a world that was not dependent on fossil fuels and to remain owner managed throughout the process. And what Sono is offering is a truly sustainable carbon neutrally produced vehicle that is powered by the rays of the sun. And there's clearly a demand for this sort of product and something that none of Europe's OEMs are doing. And when Sono was founded in 2016, they were really at the forefront of innovation in this space. No other company at the time had developed a solar solution for a private vehicle like Sono had. And in early May of this year, the company announced they had received over 10,000 pre-orders for the first series of production of this solar electric Scion vehicle. And these orders are placed from over 30 different countries. Sona's different by design approach has also led into their fundraising strategy, issuing traditional venture capital to raise from their community of supporters. In 2017, Sono raised their first investments of over a million euros through an innovative crowdfunding campaign in an effort that they said was to build a community and also to build trust in the company. 
At the time, they offered investors a few different investment options, either the choice to invest in equity or debt capital. The next year, so in 2018, Sono raced again through another crowdfunding round, which raised more than 5 million euros in the first week. This round of investment eventually totals just under 6 million euros and was supported by a combination of individuals, private companies, nonprofits, and family offices. At the time of this fundraising, Sono said that getting institutional investors on board alongside the crowdfunders would be a key focus for them. However, after the financing round was over, the company never released any information about what institutional investors they brought on board. Currently, these private institutional investors into Sono have a bit over 30% of the company's equity, according to the information on the firm's website. Sono makes an effort for transparency, but that being said, they could do a lot more in making their financial details more legible and understandable, especially for their wide community of crowdfunders. The only one of the institutional investors that I've been able to find for Sono is called V Venture. V as in the German saying, so it's W-I Venture. And they're based in Mainz, Germany, and largely fund German companies that are working on green and earth-friendly technologies. Um, some of their previous investments include Klar Solar, a solar panel marketplace, and Frisch Post, which is a subscription company supporting local and regional food producers. But on December 1st, so last week, the company launched a new crowdfunding campaign. They're now giving themselves 30 days to raise 50 million euros in arguably one of the most toughest times of year to fundraise. According to a piece by Yahoo Finance on Sonos campaign, the article seems to insinuate that the crowdfunding round is motivated by an effort to part ways with investors. But while Yahoo's writers might know something I don't, according to Sono's communication around the campaign, it doesn't necessarily look like a buyout of traditional investors. Rather, it appears more of a way to build more runway and continue their growth without having to take on more private equity and dilution. An open letter on the Sono website announces a campaign with the following from the company's founders. So I'll quote here. Developing a car and disruptive technologies require high investments. Therefore, we took a usual route to finance our project. During this process of numerous negotiations with investors from all over the globe, we realized that the expectations of the classical investment world and our values do not match. We face the risk of losing our key technologies to investors who do not share our convictions. This would have been the end of the project Scion, the end of what we have promised. We opted for our core values and decided against selling out. We will stand up for our beliefs and continue what we began, together with people like you who believe in our mission. End quote. In the letter and in the accompanying information on the firm's website, you can see the frustration the team has felt with traditional investors and how things are generally done when it comes to investing in these type of technologies. This crowdfunding round appears to be a further effort to bypass traditional VCs or at least limit their involvement in the company. But their approach was different in the past as they clearly thought they could find investors whose values were congruent to their own. According to the firm, quote, Financing in the German market environment is a real challenge. International investors were therefore at the heart of our financing strategy, end quote. 
Well, of course, it's early days of the campaign. As um, we're taping this now, it's only been on for five days. It's clear to see that there continues to be an appetite for what Sono is offering or hopes to offer. Sono reached 5 million euros in campaign pledges in less than three days. While this crowdfunding approach is brave, Sono's success still remains uncertain. This change in strategy brings up some questions about the company's future. The forecast presented last year during their funding round at that time expected the production of the vehicles was due to begin in the second half of next year, so in 2020. And this was already pushed back from previous expectations. Now, should the funding be successful, it looks like things will be pushed back into Q1 of 2022. Well, I think everyone in this space expects setbacks. For some, the future, especially a carbon neutral one, cannot come soon enough. And if Sono successfully raises that 50 million, what will happen then? The road ahead is not particularly straightforward. The company expects it will still need 205 million euros before the start of production, even after the crowdfunding campaign, which they hope to raise from a variety of different sources. These are still not entirely clear. Another challenge here is competition. At the time of Sono's founding, as I mentioned previously, no other manufacturer had committed to building a solar-powered vehicle quite like Sono's offering. It was very much ahead of its time. But now Toyota and Hyundai are working on variations, and the Lightyear One, a very slick solar-powered vehicle from the Netherlands, has been named to Time Magazine's list of best inventions for 2019. Do check that out if you're really interested in mobility. It's a really beautiful vehicle. But possibly more worrying, what if Sono doesn't raise the funding? It's hard to tell, but according to the investor pledges, if the company does not reach the milestone of 50 million euros in 30 days, they won't collect the pledges. So it's anyone's guess what happens then. As the Sono case demonstrates here, solving big problems and creating groundbreaking innovations like this are tough, especially when you don't want to compromise on your principles. You could imagine that the firm could have taken on the private investment and maybe would have had the chance to move much faster, especially when there are competitors on the horizon. But at the end of the day, your principles and values are all that you have. And this is something that Sonos was very strong with from the beginning. So there's a very tough road ahead for the company. But for a problem like this, solving the future of transport, the payoff is potentially huge. I hope it is something that plays out for them. In any case, I'll be eagerly following what happens with this crowdfunding round. Uh, this is an interesting one. Natalie, thank you so much for summing this up because this is a really long story. But I mean, there are still like loads of questions, I suppose, like more questions than answers, even, <laughs> even though everything that's happening is, uh, is pretty clear. I don't like, okay, 50 million is, is all right. Probably they, they can do it, but like 205 million extra. You can only crowdfund certain amount. You can't really crowdfund 200 million euros, not, not in Europe, not for a car. Yeah, and I don't think they're trying to crowdfund that 200 uh, million. So they're going to try to do different sorts of bank loans or um, debt equity, um, different arrangements for that. But really, I think 50 million for crowdfunding is one of the biggest crowdfunding events that we've ever seen anywhere, certainly in Europe. So this is significant. I'm also wondering what sorts of values uh, did not ma match between uh, uh, Sono and uh, the VCs. Is it just return for investment, maybe? That would be the only universal value that uh, all VCs in the world have. And uh, apparently Sono was not able to find anyone without that value. 
Yeah, possibly that. But something they also mentioned was that they didn't want the ownership of the technology to fall into the hands of investors whose kind of background and whose interests don't match our own. Um, this seems really kind of a very interesting one. Um, and I wish we would know more about it. But there are some certainly unanswered questions there. Yeah. It's also probably interesting that uh, i just checked uh, light year one which is the really nice car and uh, apparently they want to start production uh, uh, in 2021 which if it happens it would be actually earlier uh, than sona starts there right and the light year one isn't a direct competitor no uh, but it is something in the space that is really exciting and something that wasn't even on the horizon when Sona was getting started. What's also interesting is the difference in price because uh, Lightyear One, as far as I can see, is going to cost more than $100,000. And uh, Sona Scion is going to cost like 25,000 euros. Mm-hmm. And it really, when Sono, the Scion was announced originally, it was at 16,000 euros. And so this has kind of moved upwards. It's, but, but, but it's, I mean, it's too good to be true. And, and in this sort of world, if something is too good to be true, it's probably not. That's what I've seen so far. Yeah, so I think a lot of us will be following this. Um, lots of interesting questions. Tough road ahead, but I think it's really exciting because there is such an appetite for this. And maybe that's all that it takes. It would be wonderful to see this succeed. Yeah, certainly. But I will try to find out more and I will tell you next time. Okay, so I also had another update uh, that I promised at the beginning. So here it is. And it's going to be about DeepMind. Uh, in August, we talked about uh, Mustafa Suleiman, uh, the co-founder of this uh, UK-based company, who apparently had been placed on a leave of absence uh, with no good explanation as to why. Uh, so in case you missed that one, a quick refresher on the company. The startup was founded in 2010 and then acquired by Google, or more precisely by Alphabet, in a 2014 for a reported 650 million US dollars. The deal back then was actually received quite positively uh, by the European community. And after the acquisition took place, DeepMind uh, had always maintained that it operates independently of its parent and it is not pressured to achieve any particular financial goals. So things seemed generally okay up until 2016 when a controversy broke off regarding a data sharing agreement between DeepMind and the NHS in the UK. Long story short here, the problem was that DeepMind apparently obtained way more data uh, than was necessary for its application to function properly. Then uh, later in 2018, uh, the Google Health unit had uh, absorbed uh, the health part of DeepMind, uh, which also was met with a lot of skepticism in the industry, although DeepMind, of course, said that nothing could go wrong at all and the data protection was the company's uh, main priority and so on and so forth. And after that, Suleiman was reportedly removed from the day-to-day operations of the health unit at DeepMind. Around the time of Suleiman stepping aside, we also learned that DeepMind had been burning a lot of cash. Uh, it burned to the tune of 1 billion US dollars over three years. And in addition to that, it was also reported that the startup owed another 1 billion US dollars to Google itself. So it, it, it was a really strange situation, which I can't really explain fully. But uh, here is the update that I promised. After three months of silence uh, from August uh, uh, till early December, Mustafa Suleiman has announced on Twitter that he is leaving DeepMind after all. And he is moving to, you guessed it, Google. 
He said on Twitter that he will now work on, I quote, the opportunities and impacts of applied AI technologies, the quote ends. But his official new title hasn't been disclosed yet, so there is very little information as to what's happening. The only thing we really know is that he is not coming back to the company he co-founded. So that's the follow-up for now, but certainly not the end of this story, so you can expect more follow-ups in the future. Natalie, do you have any particular take on the story of DeepMind? What does it tell you so i think maybe less on deep mind but more on the founder mustafa suleiman he is such an interesting character and someone that is very hard to read and especially following his announcements and it it's very kind not always sure about what he's going to decide to do or what where he's going to go i think maybe we could have expected this but i am surprised that it's going back to google yeah Indeed. And he is not a technical person, as far as I can see. He is actually, he has a background of uh, conflict uh, negotiator at uh, the United Nations and stuff. So his uh, occupation in the industry would probably be something around like ethics or whatever humanitarian applications of AI you can, uh, you can think of. That's, that's at least what I could uh, think about. So it would be very interesting to see what his new job title is yep. ethicist in residence maybe <laughs> that's a good idea i'm also wondering if he's going to stay in the uk or uh, move over to the united states so we shall see and we will certainly update you on this later now it is time for the interview of this episode and uh, this is going to be a conversation with christophe perron uh, the co-founder of steamergy this interview is another part of a series of three conversations uh, with french startups that we recorded at slash 2019 this series is kindly sponsored by la french tech the brand that represents the french startup ecosystem and all those in it from bioscience to online marketplaces wherever in the world they come from so let's listen to our interview with christophe perron and we will be back in a few minutes with recommendations let's start with the beginning so what is your name and what is it you're doing so I'm Christophe Perron. Uh, I'm the CEO of Steamergy. Right. And what is Steamergy? Uh, Steamergy is a web uh, hosting company uh, that is hosting websites and different uh, digital applications on cloud, which is zero carbon. Right. And what does it mean in practice? What's your cloud like? So uh, in practice, that means that we are installing our own data centers in um, heating room of buildings so that all the heat uh, generated by our data centers is uh, reused and we don't need any air conditioning system. And also we are using um, servers that have already there a carbon footprint that has been harmonized. Right, but how about in the summer? You still you still would need some uh, cooling in the summer then? Yeah, we need some cooling in the summer, but you are still taking shower in summer. So you need uh, water which is more than okay. uh, 20 degrees. That makes sense. So, uh, And when I hear about this idea, I remember uh, the Dutch startup called Nerdalize. Mm -hmm. You know this one? Yeah, I've heard of, uh, of them. Which went bankrupt uh, yeah. uh, in the beginning of this year. So uh, how do you, why do you think that it will not happen to you? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I don't know why they're, they're bankrupt, but you, you know, um, founding a startup is quite a big challenge. So there could be many reasons why you bankrupt. I really think we've got a huge market. In my position, I see that on the energy market, there are plenty of things to do. Uh, we've got a big, uh, a lot of customers. And the main challenge today is on the IT. IT is just taking consciousness that today they are have to do something against global warming and right. there are some solutions that we can propose them. Right. So 
How does it work from your side? How do you decide which buildings you want to come in and uh, how do you build your uh, infrastructure? What, what, what is it like? Mm -hmm. So all swing pools are eligible to our technology mm -hmm. uh, if there are enough space to integrate our mini data centers. And then we are studying uh, residential buildings uh, where you've got a central uh, heating production system. And then depending on the surface there is available in this building and their energy consumption, we, we can add our system. And then uh, we have to check that uh, it can be connected with optical fiber. If it does, then we just interconnect uh, this new installation to our global uh, distributed data center and then it works. Right. And so, so you are using the existing uh, fiber optics, uh, let's say. Yeah, actually, if the fiber optic is already connecting the, the building, it's just mm -hmm. perfect case. It's a perfect scenario. Uh, if it's not and there is a fiber optic network not so far, we can just bring it to the building for... for Doesn't it. that mean that uh, you will lower the internet access speeds for the residents themselves if you use uh, the existing infrastructure? No, because we've, we are really a data center, so we've got a dedicated optical fiber for us and for our own needs. Yeah, but you just said that you're using the existing uh, fiber optics network. Yeah, it, it's it's getting technical, but um, when you've got a building that is connected to fiber optic, mm -hmm. uh, you've got at least four brains, four optical fiber mm -hmm. that is coming to the building. Mm -hmm. Just one is used for the world building, there are f three left. Okay. And we are use, using this uh, available optical fiber for our needs. Right. And your hardware, these uh, mini data centers that you call them, do you build them build them yourselves? Uh, how are they different from like what you can get off the shelves? What is it like? Yeah, so we've got uh, a system that uh, we integrate in a building. We are working with local uh, uh, workers so they mm -hmm. can do the, 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 the job for us and we can yeah, manage to, to um, make the ecosystem uh, be implied in the installation of our mini data centers. So how much or how little space do you need to install your main data center? Perfect space for us is around 10 square meter, which means like a, a car park space. And how long does it take you to install everything? Two to three months. Right. Okay. And uh, what do you host? Like, do you have any particular, let's say, niches that you work in? Yeah, today we are hosting websites mm -hmm. because it's very easy for us to ensure very high availability of websites. Websites are not data sensitive, so it's uh, there is no question of uh, data security. And we are also uh, doing uh, computing uh, and storage of IoT data. Right. And how many installations do you have by now? We've got 16 installations in France and we are starting to go abroad. We have a few new installations that will be brought up by mid-2020. Right. And abroad, where are you going exactly? Um, today we are going to Switzerland, for example, and we are expecting to go to Austria and maybe Germany. Okay, this is interesting. And what's the business model? Like, where do you get the money from? How does it work? So we've got a double <laughs> business model. Uh, on the one side, we are selling a heating system. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other side, we've got recurring revenues, thanks to, to our hosting capacity. So the interest is that not only uh, we do not have expenses for air conditioning system, but we've got an additional revenue compared to standard data centers, which is linked to the, uh, the reused heat. Okay. which makes us competitive. This is a, a business model which is leveraging circular economy to make it work. So for the heat, however, you charge less uh, than an energy provider. 
Uh, we are at the same price, but our but, energy uh, but is then free. what's the point for the for, for, for the residential unit to have uh, you install uh, install your stuff? For the new building, uh, it enables us to uh, it enables our customer to have their certification and to be able to build new buildings which are almost carbon free. And for the old buildings, uh, it enables, uh, for example, social landlords to have their uh, how do you say real estate uh, being valorized. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, what's the redundancy like? Basically, it's uh, it kind of feels like with this uh, distribution, there are a lot of uh, risks that like, what happens basically if one mini data center just goes offline? Okay. This is one of, of our strengths, actually. Because today, uh, even in standard data centers, um, you've got a lot of technologies that is using distribution, um, the asset of distribution mm-hmm. to, to remain stronger. So when you've got one data center or two or three that's just, uh, fa- are just failing, uh, we've got all the others that can take the charge of these uh, different data centers. And we've got today a lot of technologies like Kubernetes and, also, uh, and so on that are um, uh, managing this uh, automatically. Right. But do you know like how many times uh, each piece of data is replicated in this case? Yes, it's a good question. Today, uh, when you, you are in a standard data center, okay, you've got uh, generally two hard drive mm-hmm. to store data, mm-hmm. and then you're doing some other replication, either backup, either a hot replication. So you've got a replication that is uh, between two and five. Right. You've got exactly the same replication. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, and who are your competitors then? Um, competitors are just standard data centers, huh, I would mm-hmm. say. And then we can see right now, uh, now that the uh, market is ready for uh, integrating um, environmental responsibility, we can see some new startups that are trying to, uh, to do the same thing as us. And we are expecting that, uh, we are hoping that we could one day join our forces together to make um, a Europe that is uh, that's, uh, carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. Right. And you mentioned that uh, websites are not that security sensitive. That's not exactly how I see it, though. Like, there are websites that have really uh, sensitive data on them, for example. So how do you ensure security? Oh, okay. Um, if they are data that are very sensitive, then they will not go to our infrastructure. Okay. But that's not the main part. I mean, like you've got, when you've got your websites, you've got a website just to make people know that you are uh, existing. So what is important is that your website is always online. And this is one of our strengths. Right. So you also have like normal data center? Uh, not really. I would say that we need to, um, Rely on uh, telecom operator mm-hmm. uh, for the internet access and so on. So uh, part of our infrastructure is relying on a standard data center, mm-hmm. but all our applications are really um, hosted in our own data center. Right. And do you uh, does your price uh, for uh, hosting customers does is it different? We we manage thanks to our business model to be at the same price as uh, the leaders in this field. Right. And how big is the company right now? Uh, the company remains um, uh, a young company, uh, so we are uh, trying to raise money to increase our sales uh, mm-hmm. people. And uh, yes, we are not a big number, but we are doing a great job. Right. So, how many are you? <laughs> we are three people today. Three people. Yeah. Great. And we have uh, yeah sixteen installations in France. And what's your own background? Like, how did you arrive to this idea in general? Uh, oh, the story is simple. I was responsible of um, uh, server room in one of my previous uh, company and then one day there was a shortage of air conditioning system 
And then when I get in the room, it was more than 40 degrees. It's a sauna. <laughs> yeah, it was really quite a real sauna. So I just realized that we could do something with this heat instead of using air conditioning system. Why not using it to uh, heat the shower of our buildings? And this is how the ID come. Right. Okay, great. Uh, Christoph, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks a lot for taking the time and uh, good luck. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechEU, episode number 146. Uh, we have just listened to the interview of the day, and now it's time for recommendations. Today, I don't really have one, actually, so Natalie, I'm giving you the double time slot to go ahead and talk about uh, the report that you wanted to discuss. All right, so maybe I need the double time slot because this recommendation, if you're going to take it on, um, you might need that amount of time to get through it. So this week, I want to recommend a report by the European Investment Fund, which is titled the VC Factor, um, which in the digital copy of the report, at least it's covered by a bright pink covering sheet with a cartoon of Popeye the Sailor Man, and who, instead of holding his traditional can of spinach, he's holding what appears to be an oil drum entitled VC Let's just say it's a creative cover and I'll say the design work throughout the report. Well, maybe you could say the report is pretty heavy on the design work, um, which in some sense makes it a bit harder to digest the takeaways from and, and the real numbers and meaty takeaways. But once you get beyond that, inside there is 50 pages of analysis that look at the outcomes of over 9,000 European technology firms that have received investment from the years 2007 to 2015. And they've developed a really interesting typology that they developed to examine the returns of some of those companies. So they identify laggards, commoners, all-rounders, visionaries, and superstars. And firms are sorted into these categories based on a subset of growth parameters. And here the EIF looks at revenue, staff numbers, assets, intangibles, and costs. Why I think some of the findings here are unique as compared to some of the other reports that are kind of, especially this time of year, pushed out with increasing frequency is because the EIF has access to a level of data that most firms that produce these types of research reports do not have. And their information comes from Invest Europe and also a company called Orbis, which is an aggregator of firm-level data that's gathered from over 75 national and international information providers. This does not have a lot of transparency, so we have to take their understanding of what they consider a startup in terms of representativeness. But in a positive sense, they go into detail about their methodology, clustering, and analysis, and talk about their limitations and biases, something that many reports on European tech do not do and should be doing more regularly. But maybe onto their findings. I don't want to give everything away, um, but they suggest that VC-backed companies grow and that companies that receive VC backing are more likely to achieve performance growth than those without. VC investment, they find, is the fuel for innovation across their data set and the companies that they identify here, which might not surprise many of us. But they have a number of interesting theories as to why that might be and the cases where it could act spuriously. So if that's something that's interesting to you, I'd encourage you to go have a look at that. Um, really, a lot of work has been put into it, and it really is a very nicely designed and very beautiful um, report to look at. So um, it's free. You don't have to put in any information into a paywall. Um, check that out. I saw this one, but I was too scared by the Popeye cover to uh, to open it and actually read what's in there. But I, I certainly will. 
It's really a curious choice, this <laughs> cover. Um, I'm not really sure where it came from. Um, it is a bit threatening in some ways. I don't know, but maybe, you know, maybe it's a good idea to kind of uh, go away from this uh, traditional uh, geometry shapes uh, or whatever else is there usually on the covers uh, of those uh, reports. It's really nice to have it more artsy, if you will, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, and uh, I understand that uh, there is always uh, limitations to different reports, but what do you think, actually? I, I wanted to ask, uh, is it better to have sort of li reports with limitations or no reports at all? I, I don't think that's really the, the dichotomy that we should be looking at. I think it's wonderful to have reports, but to always identify clearly the limitations. You're never going to have a perfect report. You're never going to have perfect data. And I think that's something, especially when we talk about tech companies and startups, especially private companies, um, especially in Europe, when we're looking at comparative data, there's going to be tons of limitations all the time. But when we don't mention them, um, there are a lot of assumptions that people make from the data that's presented that this um, is the full story and this is telling the, the truth. And I think for anyone that is presenting data, you have a real responsibility there in identifying where those limitations are because it gives you chances that you can highlight where things can be done better or utilize a different type of methodology. But there's always going to be limitations. Get those reports out there if you want to share it for the right reasons. I mean, a lot of things you see, um, it's essentially a content marketing piece and the quality is very, is quite poor. Um, but looking at the limitations and it's hard to, to think critically about some of the, some of the reports that we see nowadays, but some of them could be done a little bit better by being clear about the limitations and also the biases that are around them. And this is where I think the EIF does a very good job. I totally agree with this. Uh, but what I'm also thinking is that most of these reports are actually being consumed not as whole documents, but rather uh, as uh, just separate graphs that are being copy-pasted into different presentations to support certain points of view. And then there is basically no way for someone looking at uh, a certain graph or uh, a figure to understand the limitation of that particular report. Yeah, and you're completely right with that. And it is a real challenge, especially when we see kind of graphs and numbers being used in a convenient sense to support a different position over another or to confirm an assumption that someone has. But I think for readers of any and consumers of any of these numbers, wherever you see them, um, to always think critically and to really, I mean, we live in a world of more numbers than ever, but maybe not necessarily more data. So always look at everything with a critical eye and, and really examine where the source of, of those numbers comes from. That's the only thing that, that we can do to arm ourselves and be informed consumers of, of data. That makes a lot of sense. And this is a great uh, way to end today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is it for us today. I hope you enjoyed listening to us. And if you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andre at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining in this uh, Friday afternoon. It's already dark outside. Oh, my goodness. Thanks. Great to see you. <laughs> yeah, it is dark over here, too, but hopefully it's not dark where you all are. And thank you again, Andre, for having me on the podcast today. 
Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Monday. Bye bye. 